Uh, my name's Shannon, one of the pastors here. Glad to have you guys out. Um, yeah, let's pray and we'll get after it. God, we thank you for your grace. God, I just thank you that we can sing of our weakness and we can sing of your strength. We can sing of our frailty and we can um, just sing of your greatness. God, Lord, we just thank you um, for the goodness and the grace of the gospel that, that comforts us in the midst of, of all that we lack and that just empowers us and emboldens us and, and gives us a marvelous freedom uh, to, to love you and to love our neighbors towards you. God, I pray that um, the time that we spend together today seeking you, that it would have that result, that we would see you more clearly and that um, it would encourage us, it would embolden us, it would comfort us, and ultimately it would catalyze us out into the world to love other people toward you. Amen. All right, so we are continuing our series in the Gospel of John this morning um, called God in Our Neighborhood. And we're talking about our God who, who left heaven in order to come to our neighborhood and who likewise invites us uh, to leave the comfort of our own, of our own homes, of you know, our own social circles, of um, all the other things that are easy for us and invites us to go out and to love our neighbors toward him. Um, so specifically... As we look at entering into the lives of our neighbors, I want to I talk about loving our neighbors like Jesus loves them, and I want to talk about loving our neighbors toward Jesus. So loving our neighbors like Jesus loves them, we're talking about entering into the deepest needs of all of the people around us, entering into the pain, entering, entering, entering into the crises, um, and serving and caring in unexpected and countercultural ways. Um, we want to talk about being the people, and we have been in recent weeks, talking about being the people who joyfully disadvantage ourselves in order to be a blessing to our neighbors. And that's hard. Um, it's, it's hard because we lose perspective. It's hard to love each other, and it's hard to love other people sacrificially, especially... Um, when we're tired or when we're discouraged, when, um, honestly, just the voices of selfishness begin to whisper in our ear and we see this opportunity to love someone else and we're like, yeah, but, but me. You know, maybe, maybe I'm the one who needs to be cared for right now. Maybe I'm the, the one who, who needs more of my time right now. Maybe, um, maybe, maybe it's not so much about somebody out there. Maybe, maybe, maybe just me. So it's hard to love sacrificially. It's hard to love people towards Jesus. Likewise, um, it's hard to lead other people spiritually. It's hard to lead people toward Jesus, especially when the voices of self-doubt begin to rise up. And the thing that is clearest to us is our weakness and our frailty and our sin and our wicked desires. And it's like, man, what do I have to offer them? I'm, I, I'm, not only am I not a spiritual leader, I'm not a spiritual anything. I'm just going to back away from that and I'm going to try to find a way to comfort myself and medicate myself and get through this night because that's not me. All right? How do we overcome these things? Uh, this morning as we get into uh, kind of the middle of the first chapter of John, we're going to be reintroduced to John the Baptist. And the thing um, that I love about this passage, the thing that we see in it, is that John had extraordinary perspective. He had extraordinary perspective both on himself and on his God. And that perspective really freed him to live like Jesus and engage the world like Jesus and love people as Jesus loves them and love them toward 
Jesus. So three things we're going to see, John's perspective on himself, John's perspective on Jesus, and how these two perspectives work together to allow him to lovingly lead people toward Jesus. So first thing we see is John's perspective about himself. We're going to be in John uh, chapter 1, starting with verse 19. And I think we could sum up the way John saw himself was as a happy nobody. Um, he was he was nothing special, and he knew it. And what we see in this passage is that that is driving the religious establishment nuts, because everyone is flocking to go follow this guy named John. And they're like, "Who are you? What's your deal? Why are you gathering all of these massive crowds to follow you? Why are you baptizing them? Why are you like initiating them into? Yeah, these are the people who follow me." And he's like, "Don't don't even worry about it, guys. I am nobody." And they're like, yeah, but you got these crazy crowds, so who are you? Like, I'm nobody, I'm nobody, I'm nobody, but I'm pointing everybody to somebody. That's where John is going with his life. We'll we'll dive in. John chapter 1, verse 19. Now this was John's testimony. When the Jews of Jerusalem sent priests and Levites, these are essentially the religious leaders and the cultural elites, um, when the Jews of Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask John who he was, He did not fail to confess, but he confessed freely, I am not the Christ. All right, what does that mean? Uh, Christ is the Greek word for Messiah, both mean anointed one. It's it's a reference to a king. In this case, it's a reference to the long-awaited king, the king in the line of King David, who was was promised a thousand years before that he is going to make everything right. And there's all of these different prophecies about about these key leaders, almost all of them pointing to Jesus. There's these prophecies that come together, and we're going to get to a few more of them. But the central one is the Christ, the Messiah. He is he's the hero of the story. He's the hero of the story of all of history. Again, who's, who's going to enter into a broken world and come to our neighborhood and, and make it all good again. And basically because John is this popular and influential leader that's got thousands of people flocking to follow him, many of those people are hoping, man, could this be our guy? You know, could he be the Christ? They're just so hopeful that John is going to be the man. And then you've got the religious establishment there in the exact opposite camp. They are fearful that John is going to be the man because right now they got a good thing going and people praise them and, and people look to them and people, you know, pay them just to, you know, look all fancy and be in charge and that sort of thing. And if the Messiah comes, he's turning everything on its ear and they might be out. They saw John as a potential rival to their power and position. They're asked, like, who are you? Are you the Christ? But John confessed freely, I am not the Christ. And so they asked him, then who are you? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. And so these guys, they start running through this catalog of of Old Testament prophecies and of the different figures that were to come. And again, a lot of these point to to Jesus. Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. Jesus is is the prophet who's going to come that's going to be even more powerful than Moses. When they ask, you know, are you the prophet? They're ultimately, they don't know it, but they're asking the question, are you the Messiah? And he answers no, but one of the real curious things about this, he, they ask him, are you Elijah? And when they do that, they're, they're referencing this prophecy at the end of the book of Malachi, where Malachi is like, you know, there's, there's, I'm going to, be, before the end comes, be, before this thing gets even crazier than it is, I am going to send Elijah. And then the angel Gabriel, he actually picks up um, 
on that language, and we see it, I think it's the beginning of Luke's gospel, um, before John is born, he's prophesying about John, and he's like, you know, I'm, I'm going to send this child, and he's going to come in the spirit and power of Elijah and prepare the way for the Lord, okay? So, so bottom line, John is Elijah, and if you read through the gospel of Matthew and the gospel of Mark, you see it right on the lips of Jesus. Jesus you know, the, the guys are trying to figure out the same kind of questions that the religious establishment is asking. Jesus' disciples are asking of Jesus, and, and, and they're trying to figure out, you know, where, how's this all fit together, and where's the timeline, and who are the players, and, and what about John? And Jesus' like, well, you know, actually John is that Elijah, you know, that was long prophesied that, that's coming before me, that's preparing the way for me. And so these guys ask the question of John, are you Elijah? And he says no, but Jesus says yes, so what gives? Best I can tell, John just gave so little thought to himself and his own ministry that though he knew the Old Testament scriptures extremely well, and though he was the most powerful prophet of God that had come on the scene in like four or five hundred years, maybe longer, I honestly don't think it had occurred to him that he was the Elijah who was to come. He, he totally understood. I'm here to prepare the way for the one that's coming. But, but he didn't think of it as though, oh, I'm really significant. Give me a title. Yeah, I'm Elijah. Now, again, more irony, like some of the stuff that John's known for, he's known for like dressing crazy. You know, like, like it says that, that he wore camel hair suit with a leather belt. And you can think about you're out in the desert. You know, maybe, maybe for our culture, maybe like a, a Las Vegas, a New Mexico, a, you're, you're in the middle of the desert and you're wearing camel skins and camel hair. Like, that's, that's got to be awful. Not only would it be uncomfortable and itchy and sweaty, man, you are going to stink. It's, it's going to be horrible. But there was kind of this tradition that was started with Elijah, this great prophet who called the nation to repentance, that that's how he dressed. And so sometimes when false prophets, you know, when they wanted to kind of boost themselves up a little bit, they put on an Elijah suit. And in this case, when this true prophet came, he put on an Elijah suit, okay? And so there's all of these connections, and like John's aware of some of the connections, like I'm calling the people to repentance like Elijah did, but, but am I the man? Am, am I Elijah? Guys, don't even worry about it. I am Nobody. But man, am I excited to tell you about somebody. That is the passion, that is, that is the perspective that he had. All that John knew was that he was coming to a people who identified with God and yet had no vision for God. They considered themselves the people of God, but, but they had no perspective about who God really is. He sent them to a people who were not passionate about their creator, and in fact, they were tempted to hope in and chase after and essentially worship anything but the creator. You know, just like we're often tempted to do, we have our career goals and our family goals and our our hopes and our dreams and our comforts and our pleasures, and, and we tend to obsess over these things. And these are the kinds of people that John comes to, and the burden of his heart is, I want you to know my God, and I want you to see my God, and I know that God's been a little bit quiet for a while, but God is coming, and I'm just here, I'm here to be the front man, I'm here to pave the way, I'm here to let you know the kingdom of God is at hand, the king is coming. Now, all of these ridiculous questions about, about like the second Elijah or whatever, if you think that makes me a second Elijah, I'm just a blue-collar guy dressed in this ridiculous suit out here screaming about, about this Messiah whose name I don't even know yet. 
So if that makes me Elijah, whatever, that's above my pay grade. You guys figure that out. No, I don't think I'm Elijah. Here's who I am. Finally, they say, then, then who are you? Give us an answer that we can take back to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And again, this is the deal for John. He doesn't want to talk about himself. He doesn't care about himself. He wants to talk about Jesus, though at this point, I don't think he's even made those connections yet. He wants to talk about the Messiah. So how does he respond? Jesus, John replied in the words of Isaiah the prophet, I am the voice of one calling out in the desert. Make straight the way for the Lord. I'm the guy who is telling people, get ready to meet your Messiah. Get ready to meet your King. But the people asking the questions, they weren't listening anymore because they didn't care about John's message. They only cared that he was a threat to their power. They just wanted to know who he was. And John didn't want to talk about himself, so they were kind of at this impasse. Verse 24, now some of the Pharisees, this is another kind of subset of the important people in the ruling elite, particular group of religious scholars. Now, now some of the Pharisees who had been sent, they questioned him, man, then why do you baptize if you're not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? If you're nobody, then what gives you the right to gather all of these people in this religious movement? Because this is not a sanctioned religious movement. We did not tell you you could do this. Who do you think you are to do this? Why are you going out baptizing people? Okay, what, what does that mean? What does it mean to baptize people? John was known as John the Baptist. And, you know, like in our, in our culture, particularly if you're not very, you know, involved in the church, maybe you've heard of Baptist churches and you're like, okay, they've got to have something to do with him. Um, baptism is something that kind of spreads all the Christian denominations. Um, baptism is, is an outward symbol of an inward reality. It's a public declaration of faith. Um, and in the Christian church, it's a public identification with the teachings of Jesus and with the gospel. Before it was that, it was a way in Jewish culture to publicly identify with any particular teaching or teaching. Uh, to publicly identify with any religious movement. And so there were a lot of guys before Jesus and before John the Baptist that were baptizing people, that were basically, um, they, they were leading people into their kind of religious movement, and this was the way they publicly identified with it. John is called John the Baptist because he is the first guy that history remembers as wildly successful at this. You know, that, that just huge groups of people would come to follow him. All right, but again, he's just this, this crazy guy. This, this guy dressed in camel's hair in the desert, um, he was also a Nazarite, uh, which means that, that he had three vows, and in his case, some guys, they would make those vows later in life, like as a voluntary thing. Um, this is a deal that kind of God worked out through this angel Gabriel with John's parents. He was a Nazarite from birth. Um, what that means, three things, it means he didn't drink alcohol, it means he didn't touch dead animals, and it means he didn't cut his hair. You know, so not only is he like overdressed and a little bit overly warm with this like camel hair thing, you know, but by age 30 plus, you know, he's got hair like down to his leg, like looped up and, you know, kind of, I, I don't know if he's like wearing his hair like a backpack. I just don't know how you sustain not cutting your hair for 30 years. I don't know if that included the beard or whatever, but... This guy is ridiculous, and, and, and 
he ate grasshoppers and, and uh, he ate locusts and wild honey, is what it says in Scripture. So think grasshoppers dipped in honey. Apparently you can still eat it. You, 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 don't, you, you, don't, you don't do the dead animal thing, but apparently you can chew on a, a bug. I don't, I don't know exactly how the rules work, but um, this, this guy is wild, and what is he known for? Like in the passage that we looked at last week, the little snapshot that we get is that was kind of like, like the preview of the whole um, Gospel of John, we, we get this preview that he is crying out in the desert, you know, prepare the way for the Lord. So he looks crazy, he acts crazy, he screams and shouts, and it's all about this Messiah, and they don't even know who the Messiah is yet, but, but he's got this message, and thousands of people are flocking to him. He's not going to Jerusalem, he's not going to the cultural center, he's not going to the temple, he's going way out in the desert, middle of nowhere. The only thing notable about it is that it's near the Jordan River, it's near some water, so that if people want to publicly identify with this message of repent for the kingdom of God, is it here? Well, we've got a way to do that. We can baptize you. Okay? But, but he's out there, he's, he's getting loud, um, he's, he's seeming crazy. He is all about his message. The Pharisees, they don't care about the message at all. They're just wondering, why are people following him? Why are they publicly identifying with him? Again, they ask, why then do you baptize if you are not the Christ and not Elijah and not the prophet? If you're nobody and you know that you're nobody, why are you gathering thousands of followers? Why are you baptizing? Why are they publicly identifying with you? And he says, guys, you're not listening, you're not getting it, they are not publicly identifying with me. Some of them have even, like, they've spent enough time with me, they know that I'm nobody. Here's what they're publicly identifying. They're publicly identifying with the God of our ancestors. They're publicly identifying with my message, that the kingdom of God is at hand, the king is coming, and it's time to get our affairs in order. They're publicly identifying with the one that I'm looking to. Here's here's what he says. He says, I baptize with water, John replied. I do this little religious ceremony thing. I baptize with water. But among you stands one you do not know. He is the one who comes after me, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. This all happened at Bethany on the other side of the Jordan where John was baptizing. John says, sure, I, 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 I baptize with water, I preach, I lead people, we got this symbolic ritual, I, I let them know that the king is coming. But, but he's the one we're looking to. Again, verse 27, he is the one who comes after me, the thongs of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. I want you to think about that image. If you've been around the church, you've probably heard it before. John saying about Jesus, the thongs of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. Okay, in that culture, uh, they didn't have Nikes, they didn't have socks, um, they had these sandals, and they walked dusty roads, and they walked hot roads, okay? And so their leather sandals, or whatever they could make their sandals out of, they got extraordinarily nasty, and their feet got nasty. And so one of the cultural traditions that they have, we see it come up later in the Gospels with Jesus doing foot washings, is one of their cultural traditions is that um, people needed their feet washed. It was, it was gross. You know, you come inside, it's, it's, it's smelly, it's stinky, it's sweaty, it's dirty, and somebody's got to take on this task. And so in that culture, it was the lowest person, the person of lowest standing that was responsible to wash everyone else's feet. 
And if, if he had any money at all, it was a slave. Okay, but what, what John's talking about here is maybe something even a little bit more gross than that. It's like one thing to wash a person's feet and we got to do it, but man, you can at least take your nasty shoes off. Like, like you think about like getting done with football practice or whatever, and, and it's been raining and then you've been going a long time and everything's muddy and everything's sweaty and everything's sticky. And it's not that you just like slide your socks off like they're like fluffy slippers in the winter or something. No, somebody's got to like peel these things off, you know, because they're, they're stuck and they're nasty and they're gross and they smell awful. And then they like go in the corner and they just ferment and they smell even more awful, okay? And that's just how it goes. That's the thong of the sandal, okay? This is, this is the gross, disgusting stuff that, you know, maybe, maybe the guy who's expecting you to wash his feet, he's at least going to like have the dignity to, you know, take the nasty sock off first. No, but, but John says, you know, if I had the opportunity to peel off Jesus' nasty socks, I would not be worthy to touch them. He says, that's how low I am. I am completely unworthy. Stop asking about me. Now, if somebody said that in our culture, we'd probably think they had a self-esteem issue, right? Okay? And then what would we do about it? we would try to boost their self-esteem, okay? Because we believe, by and large, in our culture um, that, that one of the great solutions to society's ills and to our personal ills and to our personal struggles is that somebody would build up our self-esteem, okay? And so um, we get these narratives in our head where we don't feel like we're adequate, and so much of it is because we're looking for the approval of the people around us. You know, what do our peers think? What do our neighbors think? What do our friends think? What does our culture think? You know, and it just beats us down, and we get this inferiority complex. You know, I don't measure up. And again, some people in our culture, if they're reading the story of John the Baptist, like, classic inferiority uh, complex, let's fix this thing. And how do we fix it? Kind of the current mode right now that's most popular is that we we try to push off all outside influence and all outside perspective and all outside judgment, and we dive deep within ourselves. And we figure out, what would it look like for me to be true to myself? You know, who is the real me? And, you know, it doesn't matter what my family says, and it doesn't matter what tradition says, and it doesn't matter, you know, what, what past concepts of morality are, and none, none of that stuff matters. What i got to figure out is who I am. And you know what? I am the only person who can figure out who I am. And if I like somebody or I want to be like them, then maybe they can whisper in and maybe I listen to them more than I think. But, but I am the final arbiter. Um, Tim Keller does a, a great job kind of speaking to these issues. He wrote a, um, I think it was like a sermon turned into a little mini book um, called The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. But he just talks about this reality that we tend to heal our inferiority complex with a superiority complex. That, that we dethrone anyone else who would speak into our life and bring judgment or make us, um, make us feel insecure about who we are, and we declare ourselves essentially to be God. You know, I am the one who really knows, and I have, I have looked deep inside, and I have discovered who I am, and, and I don't need any of your approval because I have my approval, and that's amazing. All right? I want you to understand that's not like a biblical worldview. That's not how John is doing it. Um, that's, that's not what we see anywhere in Scripture. Like, um, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, you see Paul kind of getting at this same concept, and, and he's like, um, trying to think exactly how it goes. Um, 
He's like, you know what? I don't, I don't really care what any of you guys think of me. I don't, I don't care how you judge me. Um, I don't care how I'm judged by individuals. I don't care how I'm judged by any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself. I have a God who judges me, and, and I'm going to wait for him. And he says, you know what? My conscience is clear, but that doesn't make me innocent. There's, there's been plenty of times when my conscience was clear, but I was just jacked up in my own perspective, and I was off in the ditch, and I didn't know it. You know, there's been other times when maybe I felt really super guilty, but, but it was just like a false guilt, and I was fine. Here's the deal. I don't waste any time thinking about me anymore. I don't waste any time thinking about what you think of me, or what you think of me, or what you think of me. I don't waste any time thinking about what I think of me, because I'm going to stand before God, and he is going to make a judgment of me. And, and frankly, the returns are already in, and he's already told me a lot of what he thinks about me. He's told me of his grace, and he's told me of his goodness, and he's, he's told me of how desperately unworthy I am. Again, this is a theme that we see in Paul. This is a theme we see in John the Baptist. This is a theme we see throughout Scripture, that I come before God, and, and God helps me to recognize that I am nothing, and I am nobody, and I am contributing negatively to this entire situation, and yet he loves me. And, and as I look to him, and as I place my faith in him, and as I put my hope, not in my performance, but in the finished work of Jesus Christ, he welcomes me into his family, and he adopts me, he makes me a part of his forever family. He says, you know, once I get my hand on you, and, and you come into my family by grace through faith, I'm not letting go of you. And, and I don't care how your Saturday night went. I don't care how jacked up you were. I don't care. Like, I, I love you, and, and yeah, I care about your feelings in that sense, but, but man, you're discouraged about your performance. You're discouraged about your pride. You're discouraged about your lust. You're discouraged about your marriage. You're discouraged about how jacked up you are. I love you, and I accept you, and I welcome you, and I'm committed to changing you from the inside out. That's where Paul anchored his hope. That's where John anchored his hope. So, so these people come to John and they're like, who are you? What do you say about yourself? What do the crowds say about you? You know, give us a title. Tell us something impressive. He's like, I'm over it, guys. I don't care what you think. I don't care what I think. I care what God thinks. And here's what God's called me to do. He's called me to pave the way for this Messiah. And then the, the very next line this, this passage, it just transitions in a beautiful way. John's been talking about how unworthy he is and how, how lowly he is. And, and it's not a problem at all to him. He's just a happy nobody. Because like Paul, John isn't looking at himself. John is looking at Jesus. And then we get to verse 29. We get to this transition. He says, the next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him. And he said, look. And when I was younger, I would have liked the word look. Because look is a word that we use. And the traditional word in this passage is behold. And nobody says, behold. Okay? But, but once in a while, maybe, I don't, I don't know, you, some of you guys who know better, maybe in a Lord of the Rings movie or something kind of epic like that, you might get somebody who shouts, behold! <laughs> That's what John's doing. We caught it last week. It says, John was crying out in the wilderness. And you better believe when this moment comes, that he sees Jesus on the horizon for the first time. It's not like, oh, look. When John is talking about himself, it's very calm. It's very casual. They're like, who are you? The Messiah like, guys, no. We just, no, no. You know, like, some, sometimes we get pretty fired up about who we are and how people think of us and all this stuff. For John, talking about himself was like the most casual, meaningless, disconnected, who cares kind of thing. But when we start talking about Jesus, <laughs> behold! He's quiet about himself. He's soft-spoken about himself. He is loud about Jesus. 
The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him. Look, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John recognized that he was unworthy, but but not because he was depressed or because he suffered from low self-esteem but because he understood the beauty and the glory and the holiness of who God is. It, it, it wasn't a, a, a depressed and, and loathing insecurity. It was, a, it was a freedom of self-forgetfulness, to use Keller's language. It was a, who cares about me? Let's look at him. I don't even bother to judge myself. It's the Lord who judges me. Which again begs the question, what is the verdict? And for those who are in Christ, the verdict is not guilty. That's why he says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Behold the Lamb of God who took away my sin. Behold the Lamb of God who took everything that would make me wallow in my unworthiness and said, it just doesn't even matter anymore. Because Jesus has lived the life that you were supposed to live and though it was future to him, it's past to us. Jesus has died the death that we deserve to die. And he has declared us not guilty and he has welcomed us into his family. In the language of the passage we looked at last week, to all who receive him, to those who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. What does God say about me? He says, if you come to me on the basis of what Jesus has done, then I will accept you and I will welcome you and you will be a part of my family. Jesus is the Lamb. He's the ultimate sacrifice. Every image of substitutionary atonement, of of someone else dying in our place for our sins that we see in the Old Testament, it's fulfilled in Jesus. And like um, commentators have pointed out, like there's a lot of animals that die in the Old Testament. There's bulls and goats and and whatnot. But why the Lamb? Why 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 not say the the bull of God, the, the, the steer of God, the, 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 the ram of God. He says the lamb of God because the lamb is this docile creature. The bull's going to its death, kicking and streaming, but Jesus is going voluntarily. Behold the lamb of God who willingly lays down his life for others. It's beautiful. Every single day, Every single one of us is going to be driven by someone's evaluation of us. We're either going to be driven by what other people think about us and say about us and believe about us, or we're going to, you know, look inside and we're going to be driven by our own personal opinions, you know, what we think about ourselves, what we say about ourselves. We're going to either be driven by the opinions of others, by the opinions of ourselves, or we're going to be driven by the one who drove John and the Apostle Paul and basically all the examples that we see in Scripture, and for them, they were driven by the opinion of God. All the other voices, and and I think for us, probably the most important voice is the internal voice that needs to be silenced. Again, think about those moments when, um, when you would aspire to take some leadership in the kingdom of God, when you would aspire to take initiative for the benefit of others, when you would, when you would aspire to lead out for his glory. But, but what, is, what is the narrative that tends to go on inside of your head and in your heart? Man, I'm just too wicked for that. 
Man, if the people that I'm preaching to knew what was going through my thoughts last night, they wouldn't want to hear whatever, okay? If we give too much attention to the opinions of the men and women around us, it will enslave us. It will paralyze us. If we give too much attention to our own opinions about ourselves, our own, our own track record, our resume, whatever, it will enslave us. It will paralyze us. The only perspective that gives us freedom is when we say, I don't care what you think. I don't care what I think. I care what Jesus thinks, and I'm following him. And that gives us true humility. You know, to, to say, I don't care what you think. I care what I think. That is arrogant. That is proud. That is condescending. You guys are idiots, but I know what I think about myself. But to say, no, I don't have the answers either. I don't care what I think. Yeah, I, yeah, I look at you guys. Some of you guys are idiots. I'm an idiot too. But I have a God who I trust. And when he says, this is who I am, I believe him. And when he says, this, this is what will give me joy, I believe him. When he says, this is the way I want you to go, I follow him. There's incredible joy in that. There's incredible humility in that. And there's incredible boldness. How boldly would you share the love of your God if, if you knew that you went out there and, and any potential rejection that you could receive in this world just didn't really matter and didn't really count? Wouldn't we be bold? And if our opinions count, didn't count, and if we didn't see ourselves as superior to anyone else, wouldn't we be humble and winsome in the way that we boldly shared the love of our God? That's what we see in John the Baptist. He is over it. I am not the Christ. I am not the man. I am not the hero of the story. But let me introduce you to the hero. Let me cry out about him. Look, he is, he is on the horizon. Again, like John's in the middle of this conversation where all that anyone else wanted to talk about was him. Like, who are you? And what's your title? And what justifies this ministry? And why are you gathering so many crowds? And like in the middle of this conversation that he had no interest in anyway, all of a sudden he spots Jesus on the horizon and he cries out, behold the Lamb of God. This is what I've been talking about. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He says, this is the one I meant when I said, the man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing was with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. Then John gave this testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. I would not have known him except that the one who sent me to baptize with water, he told me, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain, he is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I testify that this is the Son of God. Here's my prayer for us in the coming week, and, and here's my prayer for us you know, from here on in until eternity. That we would be the people who, like John the Baptist, behold the Lamb of God. And that again and again and again, in the morning and the evening, throughout the day, that we would be the people who behold the Lamb of God. And that our beholding of Jesus would just calm and still and shut down all the other voices in our head. That would be the people who, who just no longer care what anyone else thinks or what their opinions are. 
And, and more importantly, in humility, we no longer care what we think or what our opinion is. We have seen him and we know him and we love him and we trust him and we follow him and we make much of him. Because we know that the most loving thing that we could do for ourselves or our neighbors is to make much of him, is to love them toward him. And that is our opportunity, and that is our joy, and all of the other silly things that we could chase after in this life, well, some of them will be fun, and some of them will be nice, and some of them will not be sinful. All of them will pale in comparison to our pursuit of and our joy in Him. Amen? Let's pray. God, I just pray for the opportunities that we're going to have this week. To look to you, to look to your word, to encourage one another in our faith, to to go to our discouraged brothers and sisters in Christ and lift their eyes to see you. God, I pray that we would take advantage of those opportunities. Um, God, I pray for the opportunities that we're going to have this week to interact with friends and family and classmates and coworkers and neighbors and complete strangers. And God, I just pray that there would be moments where we are led by your spirit in such a way that, that, that we're just having a casual conversation and all of a sudden our voice rises a little bit, like John's voice, and, and we just get a little bit excited by the power of your Holy Spirit to think of the God who's been so good to us. Lord, I pray that we can be winsome witnesses to those in the world who don't know you. Lord, help us to love them. Help us to be so caught up in you that we don't care about what it costs us to love them. Help us to be humble and gracious toward them. And God, I just pray that you would raise up a harvest of righteousness within us and a harvest of salvation in our world. Amen.